All right, so here we are. It's uh, what about a week before Christmas, and uh, we we're trying to look for something a little, little bit more laid back, a little bit more laid back to do for this particular episode. So we decided we were going to let the audience drive because we know a lot of you, and we figured, well, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> So what we did is we went into our community and we asked in our community chat, hey, what are some of the questions that you've always wanted to ask us or for us to to answer uh, on the show? Um, and so we did. We got a great response. We got a ton of questions from people in our community chat. And of course, we're also going to be opening that up to our audience as well. And we've already got some questions coming in. So look, we're going to be talking pretty much any of the topics. Everything's everything's uh, on the table. We've, we've talked a lot about marriage. We've talked about children. We've talked about homeschool. We've talked about politics. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the military life and, and war and stuff like that. So any questions, this is the episode to ask them. You can ask us anything and maybe we'll answer honestly. All right. So that's what we're going to do today. Don't make it weird. Just don't make it weird. Don't make it weird. We'll make it weird. You don't need to make it yeah, weird. We're pretty good at making yeah, it. Yeah, we'll, we'll make yeah, it weird. We're pretty good at that. <laughs> so all of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument. Thank you so much for Good Ranchers for sponsoring this episode and also to our community chat. For everyone who submitted questions for this episode, we're very thankful. If you haven't already, go down to the link in the description. Join our community chat, community chat there. We'd love to get to know you. Also, there's one question that someone proposed, a guy named Derek, and I think we're going to hit it at the end. He asked for 2.5 minutes each of Nick and Tina debating who is more conservative. So I'm excited for that. This is actually a debate we have never had on the show. Oh, no. But it's something that gets talked about quite often. So I'm, I'm excited for it. Well, it's not going to be a debate. It'll be more of a slaughter. But all right. So <laughs> oh, That's right. All right. So as always, I am your host, uh, Nick. Reasonably good guy. And then, of course, we have my beautiful bride who is back, Queen of the Bees. I am back. He left me a car this time so that I could actually drive. <laughs> That's right. Last time I, I accidentally accidentally left her stranded with us today is not master Heinz master master of history and our uh, mostly benevolent warlord in training. He is actually off to go visit family for the holidays. But what that does mean is we won't have to wait five minutes to end the introductions in order to get to, <laughs> to Nick Hamilton, our producer, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. Yes, sir. Let's go. All right. So right off the bat, let's, let's go to, we're going to go to some of our questions right off the bat from our Hold on, uh, I got to address chat. one thing real quick. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Uh, so Nick and I appear to be coordinated, but we didn't coordinate. We totally got ready to come here separately and did not see each other till we sat down at the table. So this whole Christmas theme wasn't actually planned. No, doesn't plan. Because uh, somebody asked about that. Yeah, he's wearing red, I'm wearing green. I, it was, just meant it to was be. an accident, but we'll just go with it. Okay, and we've also been told that we have limits on how long we can take to answer each question, yes, right? Sir. So we've got a timer on the screen, and what is it going to be? How, uh, how much let's time? Do we... Three minutes to start out. Three minutes to start off. That's yeah. for both of us. Or are you going to give us like a minute thirty each? Yeah, minute thirty each. Okay, minute thirty each. All right. So, what's our first question? All right. So here we go. So Cam asks us, "How can a young eighteen-year-old man speak on and spread conservatism and Christianity, especially with the rise of censorship and cancel culture?" Love the work. Well, thank you very much, Cam. Um, so for my part, and I'm waiting, I'm talking before he actually starts the clock. Um, I, I think the the number one the number one way that you have to do it first is you you have to truly understand what it is that that you believe and why. 
And so being able to make sure that you have a firm foundation and you're confident in what you believe, and then you can effectively articulate that is really important. And a lot of that comes from, from doing a lot of reading, from having uh, mentors, whether it's, it's people within your life that you know, or just, you know, great thinkers on particular topics and, and really analyzing what they have to say, kind of breaking down some of the arguments they do, but really take the time to, to truly understand it before you go and try to essentially preach it. Right. The other thing that's, I think is most important is, is how you live your life. If, if you are living your life in a well, in, in a way where the results can kind of, you know, speak for themselves. And that's not to say everybody's perfect. It's not to say that everybody gets it right. But I think people that are honest about the things that they did and what worked and the things that they did and didn't work, I think that has a huge impact on people. Um, you know, so I, I would say focus on understanding, you know, what it is that you, you think about your life, your, whether it's spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, politically, whatever it is, um, understand how to articulate it, live it out. And then a lot of times you're not just, you're not telling somebody what to do, or what they should believe or, or, or why something is a particular way. You're telling them what worked for you and, and why it worked. And, and you're presenting a logical argument. I think sometimes that can be really impactful. All right, babe, minute 30. I thought this was a question for young men though, from a man. So yeah, but you know what all young men want to impress young women. So (laughs) I thought we were giving each question that amount. Don't try to, don't try to get out of this. Look, if you weren't ready, you weren't ready. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, I would honestly, um, say ask people questions and try to open them up within their presuppositions. Like if you want to be able to share, um, you can't just go around uh, banging people over the head with it. Asking questions usually gets doors open that cause you to be able to then answer some questions yourself. And so um, I would say that. But the biggest, biggest one is don't stop talking. Don't just be shushed. You know, it, I think one of the things that we have going on um, nowadays that kind of got us where we are is this whole idea that the left can just shout us down and uh christians oh it's it's this idea that oh never talk about politics religion or whatever what's the other one politics Politics and religion um never talk about those things well the only people who actually respect that are usually conservatives the left loves to pontificate (laughs) at length about their glorious uh scheme for the world and uh and usually we get relegated to being shushed and told that we're being divisive or whatever. All I will say is don't stop. Just go ahead and and push forward with that and be one of those people who doesn't just cower to that. And if you're in a work environment where you're not supposed to talk about religion and politics and things like that, but the left is doing it, well, I mean, you're going to get reported if you talk um, about these things. So I would highly suggest you report them every time they do it as well. (laughs) <laughs> there you go. All right. We got another one here. Oh, wait, uh, Hamilton, are you picking these? Which one? Brett. Okay. Brett said, I'd be curious to hear your stories about the importance of having good Christians in your circle. Um, so yeah, I, I think anybody that's been listening for a while, watching for a while knows that, that Tina and I are Christians and we, we take our faith very seriously. And when it, when it comes to having people um, around you, the, 
you know, even people that are not Christians like Jordan Peterson, right. Who, who I would probably describe as more of like a deist. I, I think he believes in God, but not necessarily an inherent particular faith. Um, he says a lot of things that I, I think really resonate. It's the idea of being careful about who you share good news with, being careful about who you share bad news with. I think one of the biggest things that are, are important, and this kind of goes into the first part as well, when I talk about, you know, live out your values, don't just talk about them, is there's going to be times where you're going to be tempted. There's going to be times when you fail. And the question is, is do you have people around you that actually love you enough to tell you the truth and also celebrate with you when you succeed, right? They are genuinely happy about your success and they are genuinely empathetic when you fail, but they're not going to pretend like you didn't fail. That's really important. And, and Tina and I are blessed to have a lot of people that, that share our faith and our worldview. And the reason why that component is important to this is because if your worldview, if your faith, like ours is basically gives you kind of a, a prescription for life on things like objective morality and objective truth, well, then surrounding yourself with people that also believe in those things those are the people that are suited to keep you accountable. If you're surrounding yourself with people that have entirely different values, they're not going to be able to keep you accountable to your values. In fact, they're, they're probably going to encourage you in things that maybe not be productive for what you want to achieve or what you believe. Now, does that mean that you, you shouldn't, you know, have any acquaintances or friendships with people that don't exactly believe what you do? No, not necessarily. But when you're talking about that inner circle, th those people have to understand what you believe, why you believe it. They have to share those beliefs on some level so that they can help you, you know, again, be accountable, but also help you in, in that journey to make better decisions. And you do the same for them. That's an important component of growth. Well, is, is you actually, you being that person for somebody else and that person being able to be that for you. I would agree with that. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you basically, I was, I knew where I was going to go with this, but Nick said all of it. So, um, may, I will say I do not have any extremely close friends who don't have the same worldview as me. I have a really, really hard time being friends at all with anybody on the left. And, um, I, I just don't respect them. And, um, <laughs> and I can't, I'm sorry. I won't be friends with, I, this probably sounds really, really harsh, but I have enough friends in my life. I do not need to be friends with somebody on the left who thinks it's fine to rip babies apart in the womb and thinks it's fine to cut parts off of children or put them on puberty blockers, which essentially is chemical castration. So we are so far opposite. I cannot, I cannot be... It, it's like I can be an acquaintance with somebody on the left. I cannot be friends with someone on the left, not even friends. And But um, now as far as I'm a Christian, I can be friends with non-Christians. That's fine with me. But they, they really aren't in my absolute innermost circle because I can't count on them to give me godly advice, which is what I need. I need somebody uh, like my best friend will tell me when I'm being crazy, you know, and, yeah. and she'll tell me, well, that's not really how God would... <laughs> want you to think Tina, you know, cause sometimes I have thoughts and that are not great. <laughs> intrusive thoughts. Yeah. Um, and it's funny cause the world calls those intrusive thoughts. I call those, you know, thoughts that the enemy sends to you, yeah. but, um, either way, if, if you, if you dwell on those negative things and you've got a friend who's not a Christian, who doesn't push you in that, that way, they will sit there and just go through all of it with you and help you dig a lot deeper into whatever this bad yeah. thought was. So, um, that that's 
that's where I'm at with. Yeah, I, there, there's there's a lot of truth too, where where people will say like, "Show me your friends, and I'll show you where you'll be in five or ten years." Right? It's, it's mm-hmm. so. Um, all right, zero one asked uh, Tian. I'm gonna let you lead off with this one. How do you approach bad habits, vices, when trying to get closer to God and failing or being tempted to fail after it has affected marriage in a negative way? That's interesting, Ooh. huh? Uh, um, okay. So biblically, if you're it would say if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Now, obviously we're talking figuratively, but the the point is take the temptation away, get the temptation out of your life. And so, um, I mean, I, I would say I'm not really sure what kind of, um, marriage issues, you know, being affected in a negative way. I, I'm not really sure where to go with that because I'm, I don't have enough information to really sure. give advice there, but, um, but I will say, uh, whatever caused the problem can't come back. Yeah. It, it needs to stay gone. And, and that's the big one and setting up accountability. I think one of the biggest problems with bad habits or vices and, um, is, if you're trying to stop one thing, you typically don't stop that thing by replacing it with nothing. You you stop the bad thing that you're doing with something good that you do want to do, something productive or something moral or whatever it is. And so I, I think that's a, a key component. Like I'll give you a perfect example. Um, I used to, I started off smoking my pipe, right? Like I had, I had a pipe and like people used to tease me because you know, it's like, you know, Nick's strongest desire is be a 75 year old man right? <laughs> because everybody else had had like cigars or whatnot. And I'd have my pipe. And it was something that was a memory for me from my grandfather. We'd go into the den and I just, I liked the smell. And for a while there, it was fine. I would go out, I would smoke my pipe every once in a while and whatnot. And then it became like a crutch. Like every time I was stressed out and then after a while, five, six, seven, eight times a day, I was out on the porch and I would have my pipe and it was affecting my health. And then, you know, we kind of had a, a, you know, we had a death in the family. Um, My dad um, died of lung cancer yeah. from smoking. And and Tina at that point, Tina at that point for a while had been saying, babe, I really need you to cut this back. I mean, this was supposed to be kind of like a once in a while thing. And now it's a, but he really enjoyed it. I did. It was, it he was had a, no desire to, it stop. was a stress relief. I had no desire to, to stop whatsoever. Yeah, this is something where he 100% stopped for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it was right when my dad died and I looked him in the eyes and I told him I needed him to stop. I, I don't want to bury my husband. Yeah. And, uh, and it's just, it's very, very real problem. And so, yeah, I guess that would probably be a good example of something. And when it took it, look, it took me a while. Tina had to be patient with me. It took a while, but I, I will say the big thing that helped was, is that I was going away for two weeks and I left all of that like at home, I didn't have access to it. And so for two weeks, it wasn't an option. Mm-hmm. And so I had to find, interestingly enough, at that same time is when I also started watching Homestead Rescue and I started getting, and then all of a sudden I got into gardening and I got into this other. So now there were other things that were occupying my time that were productive at the same time that, you know, obviously I, I care about my wife. And, and then what happens is you start to notice the benefits from stopping that habit. Mm-hmm. And now you have a combination of the benefits from stopping as well as the combination of the benefits from whatever you replace place that yes. with. I, I will say um, there's certain things like that where uh, if you have had an addiction to something like that, I don't think it's really an option for you to do a casual um, partaking of it, which is one of the reasons why I stole Nick's pouch and I <laughs> never gave pipe. it back. I know exactly where it is and I yeah. won't tell him where it's at <laughs> because 
I don't want him to just go, oh, everyone's having a cigar. It'll be nice to have a pipe because yeah. I know the minute he takes the pipe up again, it it'll do what it did before. And so I, it, I'm just kind of terrified of him taking it back up. So I stole it. That was me being bad. <laughs> All right. I was helping him. <laughs> Jham asks, you shared about your Thanksgiving tradition, sushi Thanksgiving. I'd like to know if the Freitas Christmas tradition is just as unique. Nope. 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 <laughs> like our, 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 sushi, our sushi tradition is, is pretty unique with the whole, or our Thanksgiving tradition is pretty unique with Tina and our, our friend Susie and them coming over and making sushi for everyone. Christmas, we usually do, like we like, I, I love prime rib and, yeah. and I, I usually cook Christmas dinner. Um, or at least the the meat well, portion. Well, he of has it. started to the last like last three couple years, years yeah, but last few I years. used I did it for the Tina does previous. But no, we we have we usually <laughs> we usually will pick some time before Christmas to like do ornaments together and things like that. Christmas yep. Eve, Christmas Eve, the kids all get jammies. That's yeah, their... but I always fake them out and act like I'm not doing jammies this year. Just you know, <laughs> you have to fake them out. Yeah, and and then usually we get them the most ridiculous onesie jammies I yeah. can find. Um, but last year, I I actually sewed yeah. um, old fashioned nightgowns for our girls and just got Luke another thing. But this, I won't say what we did this year because I don't know what the kids are. The, if the they only, all see this. The two other things that we will do is we always get like we started this when the kids were little. They each get their own bottle of sparkling apple cider yeah. and they drink it right from the bottle. Mm -hmm. So it's kind. Of, it it's, looks weird. It was especially but weird. But if they're when not under the tree, they know they. They know. Oh, they notice. Oh, they yeah. Notice. But I want to. I want to point out there is one tradition that we started when they were really young, and I can't remember. I think they were like one of them was somewhere in the four range. Maybe Luke was around four or something. Anyway, I would take each kid and have them pick out a present for their siblings, mm. and so we would pay for the present, but they got to think about their sibling and pick it out for them. And I couldn't believe what a huge difference this made because what happened was the kids would get all excited for their sibling to open whatever they got them. Like they yeah. were getting, it taught them to get a lot of joy out of giving gifts. And um, that is something that I start, we started doing. I would take them shopping, do all of that. And same with like for parents and everybody yeah. else. But because it was coming from the kid, uh, it kind of instilled in them that they're not just a consumer on Christmas. They're also giving something. Yeah. And um, once they all started getting jobs and everything else, they they paid for it themselves. So I, we don't do that anymore, but they continually get gifts for each other and they get a lot of joy out of doing it. They will sit there and go, oh, I think this one looks just perfect for them. And they will sit there and get really, really excited on Christmas morning and, and just open mine next, open mine next, you know? Um, and I feel like that's a tradition that any parent can start with their kid. You're going to get these things for your kids anyway. Yeah. So take your kids and let them be the one giving it. And, um, instill that kind of start that off for them. But we'll also usually, um, usually on either Christmas Eve or Christmas day, we'll also usually read, um, the nativity story in either in the book of Luke, there's also a, a movie that I thought was a really good rendition of it. And obviously it they the take nativity some, story, they, they take some artistic license, but it's called mm -hmm. the nativity story. And I, and I actually think it's one of the, the best renditions I've ever seen of it because yeah. it it's not the, um, I mean, I think it really delves into what Mary was going through and what that meant for both her and Joseph in that culture and everything else. And there's always this idea where like, oh, this is joyous. And like, yeah, it is. But 
my gosh, for them in that moment, in that culture, that was, I mean, there were, there was a lot of, a lot of stress associated with yeah. that. And I think they do a good job. Again, um, I, I want to point out one other thing. Um, yeah. So sometimes we do things a little differently on Christmas. It's not always prime rib, right? Yeah. One year I did a goose and I didn't realize that goose was so dry and we yeah. will never do a goose again. <laughs> it kind of tastes like duck, but ducks a lot better. Well, you know <laughs> so, what I think, you know what I think part of the problem was with that goose? It didn't come from good ranchers. That's right. Because of good ranchers that supplied that goose, it probably would have remained succulent forever because that's the sort of quality meat you get with good ranchers. That's right. If you use promo code Nick, go to goodranchers.com, promo code Nick, you're going to get 15% off a whole host of various orders there, not to mention the fact they've still got gift boxes. They still got last minute gifts that you can give, and that goes all the way to December 31st. That's how long you get that, that 15%. Also, it's not just about the meat. I know that sounds weird coming from me, right? But it's also about merch. They got some pretty cool merch. Check that out as well. I just did a, a short uh, while back where I was wearing some of my, my Good Ranchers swag. So go check that out. They got some funny stuff in there. Some stuff that really sends a signal, especially to the UN that now wants us to cut out meat, that we're not doing it. And yes, we will go to war over this. So GoodRanchers.com, promo code Nick. Go look at some of the finest American-raised beef, poultry, pork, wild-caught seafood. It's all there. Go look at the gift boxes as well. Some great deals. Take advantage of that. And once again, thank you to Good Ranchers for sponsoring the show. So, yeah. all right. Oh, hold on. I'm not done. Oh, gosh. Okay. We, we, our time's up. Remember, I there's a timer. I them about There was the a one, timer. No. There was one Christmas where the Clancy's brought all this lobster from Maine, and that was probably the best one. That was that was yeah. really good. That was really good. All right. Uh, groovy, groovy as. <laughs> what would you say to young men who have an inclination to protect and help people but don't know what career to choose? So I, I would say this. I think the inclination to protect and help people, I think that should be a universal male trait. I really do. Regardless of the job that you pick. One of the things I want to emphasize to people is just because you don't pick a job in the military or law enforcement or maybe a first responder or some of those careers that are are really associated with protection or fighting or, or things of that nature. You can be an accountant. All right. But I will tell you right now, if you're a dad that protects the family to your wife, to your little girl, to your son, you're still the bravest, strongest man in the world. If you're standing up and actually doing your job, this is not so much about the career you choose as it is the habits and the discipline that you display within your life and how you treat the people that you love and whether or not they can rely upon you to protect and provide. So I, I want to get that out first, but I would say that if you really do feel a calling to go into some sort of occupation, um, I, I mean, I, I think first responders, firefighters, police officers, um, soldiers, sailors, uh, Marines, Air Force. <laughs> I had to, I had to trash on the Air Force a little bit. No, those those are those are all obviously careers which I think can can provide a lot of. Um, you know, meaning within that particular aspect of your life. It can also provide you a lot of training that is relevant to that desire to be a protector and a provider as well. That's not to say there aren't other jobs out there that, that also allow you to be able to do that, but those are the ones that easily come to mind. I can tell you right now, um, I, I, I really enjoyed my time in the military. Not every day, but I, I overall, I look back very fondly of that time in the military and the camaraderie, the skills and the training that I went through. Uh, for a while, I was going to get out and the job I was going to go into is I was going to be a police officer. And so I, I was drawn to those those fields, but I just want to make it clear that, um, you, 
again, be a protector, be a provider. Um, one, one of the best things you can do that too is look, work out, keep yourself in shape, eat right. Right. And then, um, maybe, maybe take on like a martial art or something like that. My son and I do MMA together. And, and again, most days I love it. Usually not right in the moment when I'm like about ready to hack up a lung you know, uh, or throw up. Cause our coach is a great guy. Eric has just, you know, lied to us about how long we're going to have to do that plank. But, um, but all of that is, is good for fostering that protector, that protector, that provider aspect. But um, yeah, military, first responders, police, I think those are some of the most common jobs that people go into with, if that's their calling. That's all right. Those are yeah, I'm, I'm not a man, so I'm not going to answer Okay, that. Shannon asks, I have two questions, and we're going to allow Shannon to get away from this because she is away with this because she's a wonderful member of our community. I have two, one inspired heavily by our amazing Brianna Joe. What can more introverted young women do to help influence change in the right direction? So, Tina, I'm going to go with that because you are technically on the introverted side of the scale. I am. I am an INTP, whatever yeah. that means. Um, I guess Einstein was an INTP, so I guess I'm in good company, but, (laughs) but, um, it's all relative introversion. Basically, uh, you, you need time to recharge and all of that. One thing I would say is, um, just cause we are introverts doesn't mean, um, we allow ourselves to stay in that introversion, uh, indefinitely. Part of it is pushing yourself out of your comfort zones. I'm just going to give you an example. When I was, um, I ran for public office and I knocked 100 doors a day for two or three months straight. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't, uh, half the time I didn't even take Sunday off, which I probably was probably a mistake. But um, so I knocked so many doors. I talked to so many people and I am an introvert. But somehow I was able to push myself through that. So if something is important enough to you, which this was really important to me, um, you will notice that your threshold, your introversion threshold and your need for the recharge that afterwards, you will notice that you can kind of um, push your level up a little bit. So you, you start sort of expanding your ability and, and finding a new equilibrium. So uh, after I did all of that, I realized I could handle a lot more social time than I used to be able to. And it's because I was sort of exercising that, if that makes sense. So I feel like the worst thing an introvert can do is avoid all social interaction. I feel like we have, we have to, we can't let introversion, um, stop us from, doing what we feel like we need to, like talking with people and helping to spread the truth and things like that. Um, those things are so important that we we sort of, I would say the, the comfortable thing to do is to stay in your little shell and to stay home. But I said this once before is one of the worst um, addictions you can have is addiction to comfort. You push yourself outside your comfort zone. You have to. And um, if I can do it, other people can do it. I'm not as extreme on the introversion, but I am definitely yeah. an introvert. And uh, I, I, but I do think that you can find a better equilibrium that pushes you a little closer to being able to talk to people. I, I think the other thing too, because that that question was specifically directed toward women for um, a lot of times you'll find yourselves in marriages where you'll have one extrovert, one introvert. Mm -hmm. And that can actually be a really good thing as long as people kind of respect where they're at. So Tina sometimes will 
like, I'll be like, Hey, let's do this. or let's go do this. Or what about this? And, and sometimes that kind of overwhelms or she'll be like, I don't know about. And then once we do it, she'll be like, yeah, I had a good time. That, that was, right. that was fun. And what, what Tina's done is she's given me permission to kind of push her into things and, and not give up the first time she says, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Um, by the same token, I also have to understand when, okay, she's done now, right? So, all right, we went out and we did the fun thing with a bunch of people and she had a good time. That that doesn't mean she wants to do the same thing tomorrow and yeah. the next day and the day after. It's no. The other thing too that I like to tell extroverts, I actually used to teach a, a, a class, a high school uh, class at a co-op and I, I used to tell the extroverts because a lot of what we did in that class was debate. And I used to tell the extroverts, I'm like, look, when we're standing up in class and debating, you're going to probably feel really confident in what you're doing. Just remember that a lot of the debates that you've memorized, a lot of the arguments that you've memorized, a lot of the facts and the research you've memorized were written by introverts who were alone in a room somewhere, right? That didn't like this part of the debate. So respect what each of you brings to the table and, and respect that there's going to be times when the extrovert pushes the introvert to get out there a little bit more. And there's going to be times where the introvert reminds the extrovert that sometimes you need to rest. Mm -hmm. And because and introverts, we will get uh, anybody who's an introvert out there will totally know what I'm talking about after peopling for <laughs> a couple of days straight, if you have to, or, you know, a big event where there's lots and lots of people and you kind of have to be on. It's one thing to attend something that you don't, where you don't have to be on, you're just attending. But with politics, I had to be on all the time and that's exhausting. And so, because people could ask you any question, um, you, you could suddenly be thrown into a really uncomfortable conversation and, and you had no control over it. And so I would find that I would get what, what I would call, it's like a peopling hangover. It's almost like you drank the night before, even though you didn't, mm -hmm. but that's how you feel. Your head hurts. You feel kind of foggy. It is a real physical thing when, when you have peopled too much, <laughs> So give, let your introvert uh, recover. <laughs> okay. All right. We're going to try to stick to the timeline a little bit better. I Sorry. know we're going over. Okay. Um, go ahead and switch over to those other ones, Hamilton, real quick. We're going to pull some of those up. Um, okay. So from Joseph, thank you very much for the super chat question. Nick, if the military again mandated untried medical treatments, would you advise your son to take it or quit? That's a great question because my 18 year old son is looking at joining the army next year. And um, it, it's, it's interesting. I, I obviously took a lot of stuff when I was in the military, as far as like we had the smallpox and anthrax and um, I mean, you name it, there was, there was a lot of stuff and, and there were reasons for why we took it. Um, but ultimately it is going to have to be his decision. What I would, what I would advise my son is, is that this is something that you go into with the understanding that there are going to be certain requirements by, by virtue of serving within the military. If however, you get to a point where you are not comfortable with something you are not obligated to stay in the military when they're, when they're asking you to try something or to take something or they're telling you to try something or ingest something that was not part of the original deal that you signed on for. And I think that is what happened with, with, with respect to things like the COVID vaccine. I think it's fascinating now that the military is coming back, you know, crawling back to these veterans they treated like crap and kicked out, seeing if they want to come back into the military. So hopefully the military on some level has, has learned part of that lesson. But that would be my advice to my son is – Obviously, to fulfill some jobs and some responsibilities, you will you may have to do things that you don't necessarily like or agree with. You're going to have to determine your own threshold on what is unacceptable. And if it gets to the point where it is unacceptable, then you do what is right and moral. You don't do simply what is being mandated. Um, and he's going to have to determine, you know, what what 
level he's willing to accept with that. When I look at something like the, the COVID vaccine, I don't think it should have been mandated. I understand the people that decided to separate from the military rather than take it. I also understand the people that decided to stay in and take it. So it, it's things like that where you, you do have to make your own moral choice, I believe. Um, Fitzy's Foods. Thank you very much for the super chat. My wife and I own a home. She is a stay-at-home mom. I work. We want to save money, but with inflation, we can save very little. Most of our extra cash goes toward food. I, I will say that, um, yeah, I, I think I think everybody on some level, but especially, I mean, when Tina and I first got married, I was a private in the military. Tina was working at Old Navy. Um, and, and yeah, we made, we made next to nothing. I think it was, I think we were taking home about like maybe less than $2,000 a month. Um, and then when we had kids that had always been the goal was Tina was Tina wanted to be at home raising our kids and managing the home. And so we moved to single income and yeah, there are, there, there were sacrifices to be made now, but with inflation, it's becoming even worse and even more difficult. And the only thing I can, I can say to that is I, I don't want to make light of, of what that struggle actually looks like. I can also say that I think more and more, you're going to start to see alternatives with respect to the way people, um, manage their lives, um, with the sort of associations that they make and, and how people come together to help one another in times of need, because you're right, it is difficult to save more now than, than it's ever been. And then you save it and inflation robs you of the value of it, which is immoral. It's one of the reasons why inflation is one of the most pernicious things that a government can do to its people. Um, I will say this just as a, just as a word of encouragement. Um, you know, we don't, we don't live in a, a big, nice house. I mean, we love our property, but we, we don't live in a big, nice, fancy house. We don't have fancy cars. We don't have fancy jewelry. We don't have a, a lot of those things. We do have an excellent relationship with our kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and I cannot, I cannot think of anything uh, that, that we gave up or sacrificed that I would have ever traded uh, for how close that relationship and how confident I am with my kids and, and their faith and what they believe and why they believe it. And, um, and so the sacrifices are, are getting harder uh, for people. All I can tell you is that I, I'm probably a little bit farther down the road on some of this and, um, it, and it's been worth it. It's been worth it. Um, yeah, I, I think that's all yeah. I have. Having been through, I mean, we were poor together. I mean, I, I remember struggling uh, in childhood too before yeah. Nick and I. So I, I think um, focusing on the relationships that's the most important thing. Um, you can tighten the belt. You can do things a little at a time. I, I will say my mom, uh, when things were super, super tight and she needed to do Christmas for us kids and things like that, she would do crafting things and sell them throughout the year and that, and set that money aside. And that would be her Christmas money so that the budget wasn't affected yeah. by Christmas that way. No, I, I think that's all. And again, I think the other thing too, that when you're, when you are, when you don't have as much money to go around, it's a great time to be creative. Yeah. It, it, Cause if you look at it and if you just focus on not having the money, which I've been there, I've been on just focusing on, I don't have the money. How do I get more? Um, to where other times in my life it was like, okay, I don't have the money. What, what can we change or what we can do? Not from a, a vision of sacrifice, but how do we do certain things better or how do we get enjoyment out of things right now that we're not doing because we're focused on not having the money? And, and again, I don't say that flippantly, but, but it is something that I, I do think is relevant and, and can work a great deal. Yeah. Uh, Derek Musgrave asks, is being a Christian a chance event? Had Nick Tina been born into another religion, do you think you would have found Christianity? I but, was. I was yeah. born into another religion. So 
Um, I don't talk about this a whole lot because there's a lot of people I love that are in the religion that I came from, but I, I, um, started off my life LDS and, um, uh, having, which is Mormon, anybody that doesn't know. Um, and my entire family was Mormon. Um, my grandfather was, uh, very, very, let's just, he's the one that, uh, baptized us. It was Anyway, very devout. They were married in the temple, the whole deal. Um, and But I uh, gave my life to Christ at 13, and I left the Mormon church. Um, and so I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings that are they're Mormon, but there are some differences, and um, they were significant enough to where I did leave, and I did get a letter of excommunication. Yeah. So. So I, I don't I don't think it's it's interesting. I mean, we could get into a whole uh, argument about <laughs> Armenianism versus Calvinism and the, and the whole deal on chance. I, I do I do believe in God's sovereignty, um, and I, I don't think no I don't think it's chance. I'll put it that way. Um, I, I obviously if you if you are grown into an environment and a culture and a particular faith, there's generally incentives for staying in it, and there can be disincentives associated with leaving it. The the question for me was always um, I, I want to believe. What I honestly believe is true. I, I don't want to be committed to something that I don't believe is true. I don't want to believe in it simply for cultural reasons or utilitarian reasons. I want to believe in it because I think it is it is actually it it reflects reality. Um, and so I, I think um, I think anybody can come to that conclusion. And and um, again, we can get into a deeper discussion with respect to Christian faith and its statement on that. But I think that's I think that's important. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, oh, okay. Zedekin had a question, but I think it was, um, it was, it was a very broad question. It was like, what did I think about the military situation in China, Russia, and Ukraine, Taiwan, Iran, Israel? So that's, that's pretty broad here. Let me give you a quick once over the world. Um, I, I think that, I think that uh, Russia was the aggressor in Ukraine. That's not to say that there weren't plenty of problems within Ukraine. And so uh, what I hope to see is, I, I don't want to see Russia win that war. Um, I, I would like to see a peaceful resolution as soon as possible. And I, and I believe that Ukrainians have a right to fight for the uh, geographical and territorial integrity of their country. By the same token, I do not believe it is the overwhelming responsibility of the United States taxpayer and certainly not the military in order to fight that war for them. I think part of the reason why Ukraine finds themselves in this situation without being able to depend as heavily on neighboring allies as they should is because a lot of the member nations of NATO have repeatedly not contributed with they were supposed to. Now, again, they're not a part of NATO, and so they're not. NATO's not obligated to help them. But a lot of wealthy countries, Germany has a higher GDP than Russia. France has a higher GDP than Russia. UK has a higher GDP than Russia, right? And, and yet the United States is being heavily dependent upon in order to, to subsidize a war with a country that we have no unique treaties with nor um, long-lasting alliances with. And so I, I do feel like if Western Europe feels this is to be a significant threat, then Western Europe should be bearing the vast majority of the burden for this. And some, and a lot of countries in Western Europe have donated a great deal. I just think it's amazing how it still seems like the preponderance of a lot of the military um, you know, surplus equipment and whatnot that's going out to them is, is on the United States. And I, I don't think that's right. As far as Israel and um, Gaza, I've done two whole episodes on this. So I would refer you to those uh, for more of an in-depth discussion. But once again, I think Hamas is a terrorist organization. And I think the IDF, I think Israel has a right to exist. I think it actually makes historical sense for there to be a Jewish state in the Levant because Jewish people have continuously lived in the Levant since about, gosh, a little over 2000 BC. 
Um, so there, there's a, there's a longstanding history and tradition of there for there to be a, a Jewish state in the Levant. And I think that makes sense. If, if there's going to be a, a two state solution, fine, that's something that can be discussed. And it has been offered several times, I think up to five times now. Uh, but organizations like Hamas have repeatedly um, rejected it. And now they're not only subjecting their own people to you know, problems with they engaged in, in heinous acts on October 7th and certainly before. So um, once again, I don't think the United States has a constitutional obligation to ensure Israel's security. There is a longstanding tradition and an alliance there um, of, of sorts. Um, but Again, I think the most important thing is is the IDF has a right to protect their people, and, and that does include aggressive action against an organization like Hamas. When it comes to uh, Iran, Iran is probably the leading state sponsor of terrorism in the world right now. Um, should we ever find ourselves in a fight with Iran, I hope we would learn from Iraq and Afghanistan and understand that it is not the responsibility of the American soldier or taxpayer to remake Iran in its own image. Um, however, punitive strikes against the Iranian uh, military and government for some of the activities that they've engaged in, I think would probably be perfectly appropriate. And then when it comes to China, I honestly think that um, the, the biggest concerns with respect to China is not necessarily the invasion of Taiwan. There's really only about a few months out of the year where the, the tides are even right and the weather's okay. Uh, really the weather, not tides, weather's okay to be able to launch an amphibious invasion. And honestly, I don't think China has, I don't think China has the combined arms capability to be able to effectively do that, especially if the United States is, is backing up Taiwan um, navally and, and, uh, from an air power perspective, um, the Taiwanese can pull up 2 million reserves um, within a relatively short period of time. Um, and I, I don't think China can support a amphibious invasion across a hundred miles of, of open ocean. I just don't think they have the capability uh, in the long run to be able to pull that off. Uh, the biggest concern is more of China is China's going to lose about 700,000 people in the next 70 years. Now, on top of that, they have a huge demographic problem with 30 million more males than they have uh, women in the country. That's going to be a huge problem because when you have a young male population with no prospects for an economic future or a family, they tend to get restless and they can be violent as a result. And I think Xi Jinping understands this at the same time that his own economic problems and the housing bubble and currency manipulation in China is all in, in, a, in really bad shape. So you're going to see China really fall from prominence over the next two decades, uh, both population-wise, economically, and their, their military power will suffer as a result. The question will be, will they engage in some sort of military um, adventure in order to try to, again, as the saying goes, war abroad is peace at home. And I could see Xi Jinping uh, attempting to do something like that. I don't know how successful he would actually be in carrying something out. Whew. All right. All right. <laughs> Let me see here. Go ahead and uh, Shannon asked the question, uh, how do you all choose a good church home? The number one question is doctrine, 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 right? Is, does your, does the, does the place you're going to purport to be a church? And if it does, I would read it's, I would read not only, um, you know, I would not only listen to what they say on Sundays or Sunday school or whatever else it is. I would also look at the constitution. A lot of churches have a constitution and, and I'm talking a lot about Protestant churches and Protestant non-denominational churches. If you're going with something like Lutheran, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, there's a lot of splits in those churches. So you have what you would call more of like a, a, a left wing, or in some cases I would just call openly heretical churches. And then you have others that um, are, are doctrinally sound. So the number one thing you want to look for is, is 
is the church I'm going to doctrinally sound? And one of the best ways that you can look for that is when you look at that constitution of that church or their statement of faith, you want to look for some of the more controversial cultural issues and you want to see where they stand. Not because they're, they're going to make those issues everything, not because every Sunday is going to be a political call to arms, but because you need to know on whether or not they actually believe the Bible says what it says and means it. Because if they're willing to compromise on that, whenever it becomes culturally convenient, you're not going to a church, you're going to a social club. And, and that's a very big difference. So I, I would say that's the number one thing um, that I always look for uh, because I'm not going to have my family go to a church that I don't believe is actually you know, staying true to what our, our, our faith prescribes. The second thing that I think is really important for a, a good church group, is, and I'm, I've been a huge hypocrite on this lately, but they're small groups. So um, if, if, you look at the, if you look at the New Testament model, uh, it's, you, you, you gather together, you gather together in church, right? And that should, that's a, you know, it's a place where you learn, it's a place where you grow. But then those small groups that you have like that close, you know, group of friends and whatnot, that's where you dig into, you know, you know, deeper issues. That's where you can have more in-depth conversations and expand on things. It's also great for accountability. Uh, so I, I think those are two things that I think are really important when you look for a, a, a church, a, a good church. Tina, you got anything different on that? No. Um, the, the, the main thing is, is just to make sure that they are aligned, uh, with the Bible, you know, make sure that they're not teaching things that are borderline heretical. And you've got a lot of churches doing that nowadays. So yeah, yeah. if if a church is heretical, they're not willing to take a stance on things that are obviously Christian <laughs> doctrine. It's, it's just, like I said, it's, it's not a good church to regardless of what benefits you might get from the social interaction or, or whatnot, it's just not a positive environment. Right. I'm, I'm going to call an audible here because this question's come up a couple of times and I want to answer it. This is from Lily Albright and she wants to know, uh, she goes, she's not against guns or other weapons, but she wants to know why I think it's appropriate for civilians to be able to own something like an AR-15. So I'll be happy to answer that question. So, so an AR-15 is a semi-automatic rifle. That's what it is. Now, the reason why so many people confuse it or the reason why so many people call it like a weapon or war of why would civilians need this or whatnot is because they, they probably think it's fully automatic. Um, and they think because it looks like military style weapons, therefore it is a military style weapon, right? So that's, that's the first issue is that people need to understand that it is a semi-automatic rifle. What makes it a quote assault rifle is the fact that it has things like a pistol grip or a bayonet lug, right? And, and, and it has a collapsible stock. I'm going to tell you right now, those are arbitrary features, which are just necessary for ergonomics. It's, it doesn't make a weapon more assaulty. The second thing I would say, and this is the part where it gets more controversial, and that is, okay, why would somebody, because I do believe that, that civilians should be able to have access to the same sort of small arms that a military unit would. And that's because my understanding of the Second Amendment is rooted in a, in a very careful reading of what the founders were actually debating. And here's what you need to understand. The Second Amendment says, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. There's two components there. One of the things that the founders were noting is that a well-regulated militia is, being, is necessary to the security of a free state. The founders actually had a, a lot of trepidation and a lot of concern about standing armies, and they had a lot of concern about mercenaries, which in, in their context would have been using like foreign troops or uh, military units, were, which were not necessarily a, a part of um, the United States military or the colonial militaries or whatnot, they wanted a, a well-armed militia. Now, what was a militia? Well, George Mason, who is actually a, a Virginian and one of the founders, said that the militia is essentially the, the 
entire body of the people with the exception or able-bodied men of the people with the exception of, of a few government officials. Now, why was that important? Well, keep in mind, they didn't write the Second Amendment when they had got back from a hunting trip. They wrote the Second Amendment because a bunch of state militias, which were then thrown together to create the Continental Army, um, were responsible for taking on, at that time, the most professional, the best army in the world, that being that of the British Empire. Not to mention mercenary forces like Hessians that the, the British had actually paid to also come and fight on their behalf in the colonies. And so... As James Madison was was reading about the history of republics and generally free societies throughout history, one of the things that he noticed was standing armies could be used by governments in order to not only oppress their own people, but also could be used as justification to clamp down on civil liberties or justify large government expenditures to get involved in, in foreign incursions and invasions, right? And obviously, we, we do see that happening. The second thing that they were concerned about was this idea that... Um, in order to secure a free state, right? So this is like a collective responsibility of free people to defend a free state. Then free people have to have the, the means necessary in order to be able to do that. Now, Joe Biden can get up there tomorrow and say, well, you can't fight, you know, you can't fight a military with small arms. You need F-15s. Okay. Well, does somebody want to tell the Taliban that? Because they seem to have pulled it off. They didn't have a lot of the heavy equipment until Joe Biden left it there for them. Right. So it's important to understand that a very determined, um, a, a very determined force can fight back against a tyrannical uh, opponent, uh, even a government, even a government with heavy equipment and advanced militaries. The second part of the, the end of the right of the individual to keep and bear arms shall not be uh, infringed. That's rooted in the idea that in order to have a militia in the sense that they thought of it, the civilian population had to have access to arms. They, they had to have a right to keep and bear them. And they were very skeptical of the federal government creating some sort of, you know, law or, or whatnot that would infringe on the individual right to keep arms. Because not only did the founders recognize your individual right to be able to defend yourself and your property, they also recognized a collective responsibility for free people to come together in a well-regulated militia and be able to defend a free state. You can't do that if, if all you have is, is shotguns. So that's why I think it is perfectly appropriate for civilians and, and citizens to be able to own something like an AR-15. Now, in the event that you violate your rights and you use a firearm for a, a immoral, nefarious purpose, right? You, you harm someone, you kill someone. I believe it's perfectly appropriate to not only incarcerate you, but to also you know, suspend, uh, perhaps permanently, perhaps temporarily, your access to firearms, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I have a huge problem with any government that says in order to prevent quote gun violence or to punish someone that violates their rights, we're now going to infringe on the rights of everybody else to include a bunch of people that didn't do anything wrong. I think that's really problematic. And, and ultimately I don't want to, I don't think you can truly have at the end of the day, a free society where individuals are completely dependent upon the government for their own security. If that is the case, if that is truly the case, you might be able to get away with that for a while. But what history has shown us time and time again over time is that inevitably you will get a government that decides that it is in the best interest of the state to deprive you of essential civil liberties. And if you have no means of fighting back, you're going to find out real quick that there is no piece of parchment on the planet that protects your liberty. You are ultimately responsible for it as a free society and as a free individual. Okay. All right, here we go. A couple more. Uh, question, how do I help my husband be more comfortable with being masculine? He hasn't got the best fatherly example and his sibling activity tore him down. How can I help him become the man I know he is? That's a, um, that's a really important question. Um, 
here's what I will tell you. One of the things, um, I, I do believe that there's a lot that is ingrained into men to want to protect and provide, but a lot of it does come from example. And if that example has never been provided or the opposite has been ingrained into a, a, a young man at a very young age during formative years, it's going to be hard to, to call that out. But one of the best ways that you can do that is when you reinforce to him that he makes you feel safe. When he does something that makes you feel safe, when he, again, something as simple as walking, you guys are walking down the sidewalk, Right get on the side to where he's the one on the road and you're, you're on the one on the inside of the sidewalk. And if he asks you about it, just say, well, because you're my protector. And listen, I, I can't guarantee that he's going to give you, always going to give you the response you want. But I will say that I think from, for the vast majority of men, when, when a woman reminds us that we're her protector and tells us that we make them feel safe, it encourages us to continue to do the activities that elicit that response. And so if for a large part of growing up, he either didn't have that modeled for him or um, maybe it was discouraged in him, then yeah, the, the work that you're doing at this point is that you're, you're reinvigorating that component of his instinct and you're rewarding him for when he does it. And, and I'm not saying to be fake, right? But notice little things or put yourself in positions to be able to do it and then admire him for his strength, admire him for making you safe, admire him for protecting you. Um, and I think that will naturally trigger a response in him to want to do more of that. Um, that's, that's one way I could say it. I don't know, Tina, if you've got, um, I think there was some advice Nick gave at one point that, you know, if a man wasn't given the example of, of how to be a man, um, there are a lot of resources out there um, to help them along the path. And, you know, there's a lot of guys that feel like I was never given this, like your parents pack your bags for you. And, and in those bags are whatever tools you're going to use for life. Well, if they never gave you the tools uh, and one of your bags is completely missing and you just don't have what it takes to tackle whatever this is. Well, you're going to have to pack your own bag. You're, you're going to have to collect your own tools. And it doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means that you're going to have to be proactive about, about it. So, um, and I love the fact that Nick says, said that, you know, just because it wasn't shown to you doesn't mean you can't be the first person to start this as a legacy for your kids. Um, but as a woman, um, I think the biggest one is not to emasculate your husband. Um, there are a lot of different ways that women can emasculate a man with her words and with her actions. And, and some of it is, um, you know, sometimes if a, a man um, isn't the stronger personality in the relationship, uh, sometimes women can have a tendency to walk all over him. And um, that's going to be something the woman has to choose not to do. She's going to have to defer to him sometimes, ask him for advice sometimes, you know, ask him to do certain things for her um, and not just tackle it herself. You know, I have a tendency to see if something's broken or whatever, I will try to fix it. Well, um, I think sometimes it's a good idea to call out that desire to to be the one who fixes things in a man um, by asking him to do it. And and if he can't physically do it, then he can be the one to hire out to get it done. But but sometimes I think it's a good idea to um, to go ahead and defer yeah. um, in that way. Andrea, 
our, one of our favorite people on community chat, intensive care bear said advice on how to stay both present and joyful, especially in the context of keeping up with politics while still enjoying life. Being joyful might be one of my greatest talents in life, but hot diggity dang are a lot of people just so determined to be miserable. We yeah. love y'all's advice on how to keep in the loop without falling into the doom loop. That's a great question. Part of me wants to say, well, when you find out, let me know. Yeah. Cause we, I mean, I think this is a battle we all have and yeah. it, it's a constant re- thing to remind yourself that, okay, I can't, my friend likes to call it doom scrolling. She'll go down the <laughs> rabbit trail and she'll find all the most horrible, sad stories and, and terrible things that are happening in the world and, and just not be able to stop scrolling through it and, and reading about it. And I think, I think, uh, avoiding that tendency and forcing yourself to put it down because somebody said, I don't think that our minds were meant to consume all of the pain and sadness in all of the world all at the same time. But that's what the internet has given us Mm -hmm. is the ability to see all of these terrible things all at once. And your brain's processing it almost like it's happening to you. Like it, this is your brain doesn't understand that this isn't your problem your brain thinks it is your problem and that you need to solve it somehow. And, and so I think maybe give your brain less problems to solve and, and focus in a little bit tighter in your, uh, in your own bean patch, so to speak. Well, I, I know one of the things that uh, there have been time, I mean, obviously we have to be very present on, on social media for, for what we do, but there are definitely times we, we take off. Like I am, mm-hmm. I, I will set things down a lot on Sundays. Um, I, I am, I really enjoy too when I don't do a lot of, I don't do a lot of winter gardening, but man, when it's spring and summertime every day, right? Every day I'm out there and that provides me an opportunity to set things down and and focus on something. And I I have to tell you, if you would have told me in the height of like my military days that one day I'd be out there working a a vegetable garden, it would be my idea. And I would be the one expanding what we were doing and how we were doing it. But I, I think there is something to be said for having a hobby like that, where it does take work and there is, you know, failure, but there's also reward and it's not always immediate. Um, but I, I've noticed that I, I like having problems to solve that are actually solvable. Um, when, when we focus on things like politics, a lot of times those are, those are problems that are so far outside of the scope of what we can affect. And it doesn't mean that we should ignore them, but we also shouldn't make it the central point of our life. And so when you look at the, the things that you can do within your own house, within your own family, uh, little projects and things like that, I, I, I try to bag, bring it back to remember this. It becomes really easy to claim that the reason why I'm going down the doom loop and the reason why I'm doing all this stuff and the reason why I'm fighting is because of, is because of everything I love. If you're so busy fighting that you don't take time to actually enjoy and appreciate the things that you love, then at some point, is that really what you're fighting for? Is there something else motivating you? And so I think it can be something that I, I, I will struggle with guilt. I will struggle with guilt that if I'm not out there fighting or if I'm not out there sacrificing for something that I'm being lazy or I'm being indulgent or I'm being that that's crap. That's crap. Actually spending time. Yes. You have to sacrifice for the things you love. Yes. You have to sacrifice and work for your family, but they also need you to spend that time enjoying life with them, enjoying the time that you spend with them. That, that is part of the mission. That is, that is part of what you're working toward is to be able to affect that so that your kids don't wake up one day and look at you and be like, yeah, dad fought really hard. He just didn't spend any time with us. 
right? Well, no, what you should be fighting for is the opportunity to have that sort of relationship with your spouse, with your children, with your friend. Because again, one of the best ways that you fight for the things that you believe in is by showing everyone around you that this works. And how do you know that it works? Well, because in in the midst of chaos, you have peace. In the midst of misery, you have joy. Not because everything in your life is going swell, but because you've once again prioritized with respect to your faith, with respect to your family, what is truly important, and you've invested in that as well. And I think when you do that, um, it makes the times that you do have to fight and sacrifice worth it because it is fresh in your memory why you're actually doing this. And that that's that's the advice I would give. But it, as far as forcing your way, like put the phone down and go do something, I, I will say for me, whether it's Tina and the kids and us having friends over and going out there and playing volleyball in the, in the yard, or it's tending to animals or it's tending to a garden. I know for, for me working on working on something that's alive and growing and developing uh, that that's been really helpful. Before for we me. do that, there's a question that has come up multiple times. And yeah. then the person that asked it said, ask us anything and then we'll ignore you. So I'm going to ask the question <laughs> because it's not coming up in our thing over here. Yeah. Um, so it said, question, Nick, are you going to fight uh, the family court system to save the nuclear family and father's rights so women don't get paid um, encouragement for divorce? That is, I feel like that is a really good question because men get hosed in the court system completely and and preference is given to women all the time so um did you want to talk about that a little bit yeah i mean we we do have we have major major problems within our court system with respect to custody we also have major problems where we have set up a perverse incentive structure where essentially we we pay you to walk away from your family and and there's there's two problems with that in, in my mind. One has to do with the whole concept of no-fault divorce. Now, some people will look at that and be like, well, you want to make it harder for someone to get away from a bad marriage. No, I, I want people to take marriage seriously in, in, in the before they get married. <laughs> I'd like them to do that. And then I would like people to understand that if you're going to make a commitment in the case of marriage, you're also making, you're not just making a moral commitment, but because the state is involved, you're making a legal commitment. What does that legal commitment actually mean? Well, if that legal commitment just means that, well, as soon as we don't like this anymore, we can we can break up and leave and whatever. And and oh, by the way, as a woman, if I leave for whatever reason, um, maybe he wasn't maybe he wasn't doing anything wrong, right? If I leave for whatever reason, I'm going to get paid to leave, and I'm going to get paid the more I fight, uh, with respect to my the the uh, my ex having custody or my ex getting to see my kids, the kids end up becoming a, a, a method of leverage with respect to, to pay. That's all problematic. Let me tell you the honest legal problem with this. The honest legal problem is how do you distinguish between somebody that is abusive and somebody that is not somebody that leaves the marriage for legitimate reasons and somebody that doesn't, right? How do you, how do you deal with the idea that I believe in a situation where Um, I I think it is a wonderful thing for a woman to be able to stay home, manage the home. But what that means is that she is generally less economically viable within the marketplace. And now if she does have to take care of kids or she does have to take care of herself, should the man who remained economically viable that time have to support her to some degree? None of these questions are easy, which why is why divorce is so horrible, but we've made divorce easy. We've even made it fashionable. And so the, the thing that I would say is, yeah, it, it is horrific when you get into these situations, but there is no easy legal solution because I, I'm, I've dealt with this with constituents right now where I will have somebody come to me that I don't know personally. And Nick, this is what's going on with my kids. Well, I have their side of the story, 
but I don't know the other person's side of the story. Right. I, I don't, I don't know what they actually endured. I don't know if, if this guy might, this guy may come to me and present, or this woman may come to me and present as perfectly normal and rational and just caring about their kids. But I don't understand or know all the history. I got one side of this perspective and a court is trying to adjudicate that between people. They're trying to figure out what is real and what is fake because the moment she makes a claim, now the court has to determine whether or not that's real. The moment he makes a claim, now the court has to determine whether or not that's real. It's difficult and it is messy and there are no simple legal solutions for it, but we can certainly make it more. Here's a term that a lot of people love. We we can make it more equitable in the sense that we don't automatically make assumptions when it comes to things like custody. We don't automatically assume that, well, well, of course the kids will go to the woman if she leaves. I think we should start to ask more important questions like why is this marriage dissolving? Now keep in mind When we ask those questions, we've now incentivized each person to create the worst possible scenario for the court in order to justify why they get stuff and why they get custody. So this is, this is why I say, be careful with what you render to Caesar because Caesar has a very, very difficult and, and, and gritty and dirty process to go through in order to try to get at the truth in order to try to figure out what's best for the kids and what's best for the parties involved. So I, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to those fathers out there that have worked very hard, that there, that there, there are scenarios, there are scenarios where, where wives leave their husbands because they're mentally and physically and emotionally abusive. And there's other scenarios where they leave because they decide they want something, they want something different. And when you get into those scenarios where all of a sudden there's kids involved, it gets horrible. And, and that's where I think there, there should be legal changes with respect to how we look at custody and the assumptions that the court takes into it. It's why we should take a very, very hard look at no-fault divorce and really ask ourselves on whether or not this has created a better environment for children. Because I will tell you this much from my perspective, you get married to adults, you get married, you have kids, and now you decide to divorce. From the court's perspective, from my perspective, I'm looking at what is best for the kids in this scenario. Right? You're adults. What's best for the kids in this scenario? And I, and I think that we have study after study after study to demonstrate that if you do have a loving father, not a perfect father, but a loving father, it is absolutely critical that they be involved in their children's lives. And the court needs to take that into account on day one. The father shouldn't have to prove that. That should be an assumption. And then it should have to be proven that they're not fit. And I think in a lot of scenarios, that's not what we see. Um, so yeah, I, I, I do yeah. believe there needs to be legal changes for that, but I, I, I will tell you this much. The most important thing that I can tell people is that as long as, as long as you were relying on the courts to settle it, it'll always be problematic. There's a whole lot of good work that can be done up front. That's, that's why it is so important for people to take marriage very, very seriously. Yeah, and I, and I you force yourself to see red flags yeah, and while I don't know you're, you're, while you're on the path to the marriage and also don't get physical before the marriage. You can see a lot of 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 quirks you can see a lot of uh character flaws and things like that if you're not physically driven to be with them and the minute you're minute you get really really physical your chemistry takes over and all your hormones are telling you what to do and they're blinding you to things that you really need to see one of the biggest problems that we always tell people this is something that we really emphasize to our children is that the moment you start to the moment you let a relationship get physical the physical dominates the relationship 
And, and that is a really, really bad way to start things out because as Tina just articulated, you're not going to see all the other markers and the things that really make a marriage work because the physical is the easiest thing to figure out in a marriage. All these people running around going, how do you know if you're sexually compatible? What are you a moron? Like, so the easiest thing to figure out, it's the easiest thing to figure out, right? Boy, girl. Yeah. You're comp- the parts work. At this point, it's just about figuring out that relationship. But I will tell you this. Wow, it's the 2023. Less, it might not be uh, very the, PC for you to say it like that. But the, le- the less baggage you bring into that relationship physically, the, the better off you're going to be. So that's what I would say is, is focus up front on the spiritual, the emotional, the intellectual. Once those things have been worked out, let the physical work itself out after you get married because it, it, it'll be better that way. So anyways, all right. I know we got some more questions here and then, uh, all right. So Joseph, um, thank you for the super chat question. Retired, retired green beret, Tim Kennedy's sheepdog response teaches civilians, military combat and survival skills thoughts. Um, yeah, Tim, Tim Kennedy is, I'll tell you what guy, great fighter. He was an SF guy. I actually worked for uh, a company that sponsored him when he was, when he was still in the octagon, a company called NEK, but, uh, Tim Kennedy is great. The other thing that he's doing is in, in concert with Matt Boudreaux, they've got a program called, uh, Apogee, which is both uh, mentorship for young men as well as um, uh, setting up school scenarios for kids and families. It's really great. Apogee, go go check that out, Matt Boudreaux. But um, no, I, I think I think Tim's doing some great work in this space with respect to self defense and survival schools. Um, John Level has also done some great work with uh, Warrior Poets Society. Go check that as well. All right, uh, Zekin said, "What are your opinions on Christian nationalism and American exceptionalism?" So I'm going to be honest on on Christian nationalism. I've heard so many people talk about this in so many different ways. Here's what I will say. I I think Christianity is a, is a faith. I think it is a worldview. Um, when, when it comes to nationalism, it, I really want people to define their terms. If they're saying that they want a Christian nation, which is essentially going to be, um, do they want to be run by pastors? Like, what do you mean by that? Uh, I don't think Christianity was established to essentially be a nation. I think it was meant to be a community and a faith of people dedicated toward glorifying Christ and glorifying God. Um, so I, I just, I always need people to define their terms when they're asking me what I want for that. What would I like to live in a country where Christianity, like genuine Christianity is the predominant uh, cultural worldview? Absolutely. Do I think you can dictate that through law? No, I, I don't think you can compel someone legally to be a Christian. Um, so anyways, as far as, far as American exceptionalism, I think a lot of the ideas which informed the United States are exceptional because when you look throughout world history and you look at the sentiments within the declaration of independence, when you look at the, um, the organization of the, uh, federalism and the United States constitution, when you look at the bill of rights, I think those things are exceptional. And I think it led to a society and an economic uh, way of, of thinking and a respect for private property rights and an individual Liberty. And perhaps most importantly, and, and most forgotten, the, the recognition that in order for that society to thrive, you had to limit government power. It wasn't about, well, who should we put in charge of the government to get us things? It was no, regardless of who's in charge of the government, we have to limit its power if we want to remain a free society. I think all of those things were exceptional. I think it led to an exceptional society. I also think that we have a significant portion of the population now that wants to completely undermine and overthrow it. Uh, Elliot Roof said, how do I set and keep boundaries in a romantic relationship? 
Excellent question. I think step one, this is something that we dealt with all our kids. I have a 21 year old daughter who's engaged. Uh, I have a a son who's 18 in a committed relationship and I have a 16 year old daughter who's not allowed to date. And people always ask like, oh, well, were you not allowed to date when you were 16? No, I was allowed. Well, don't you think it's hypocritical? No, I think I learned something and I think I made sure that I set my children up for success because none of them were allowed to date before they were 18 because our argument was is that at this stage in your life, you should be focusing on developing the various skills, the various attributes that are going to be desirable for the sort of person that you want to marry. And so we put the emphasis on all our kids on you don't need to be dating and you don't need to be getting in romantic relationships, especially ones that could potentially turn physical in your early and mid teens. That's like the worst possible time to do those sorts of things because you, you, your intellect is not sufficiently developed. You don't know exactly what you want to do with your life. You, you haven't developed all of the appropriate expectations for both your role within a, in a marriage and the role of the person that you want to potentially marry. And, and I think so the, I think the question was, in reference to their own romantic relationships, not necessarily raising kids. No, no, I, I get that. But I'm yeah. what I'm doing is I'm laying groundwork for wh- okay. what are those boundaries. So those boundaries start by saying, first of all, okay, let's say you're past that, right? And, and you're, you're dating, you're in a relationship. Do not allow for you to be alone together. Um, and, and again, that doesn't mean you can't be, uh, you know, just with one another, like in a, in a space where you guys can talk, but if, if you're alone uh, together and, and this is someone that you're like serious completely about, alone, yeah, yeah, completely alone, then, then you're inviting for the physical to enter into that, uh, that stage of the relationship. And the problem is going to be, is that there's always going to be a natural desire to push the physical along later at the expense of the spiritual, intellectual, and emotional. And you have to develop the spiritual, intellectual, emotional first. You have to make sure that those, so put those boundaries in place where you're not putting yourselves in situations to make bad decisions. The other thing is, is that you should include, you guys both should be including like the people that you trust and care about most in that process. Because a lot of times if you're like, you know, goo goo over somebody, you might not see things that people who care about you will see. And sometimes that may be minor, just something to consider. Other times it might be, I'm sorry, but this is a red flag and you need to really be concerned about this. So in including the people that you love and trust, maybe people that have relationships that you would like to emulate one day, that's another good boundary to set in place because they'll help keep you accountable. But I would say preventing, preventing situations where you could get too physical, uh, in ways that are inappropriate and will, will take you off track. Um, And then setting up the activities that you do with one another that are actually going to allow you to explore the spiritual, emotional, and intellectual, right? Don't just go to the movie and look at a screen and then talk about it after, like actually set up time to really talk and get to know one another and figure out what it is that you like. But the, the boundaries and the incorporation of other people that you trust into that group. So when you're doing things together and you have other people that can kind of observe and, and, and offer, you know, healthy advice. Do you, did you have anything else on that? Nope. You said all of it. Oh, sorry, babe. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm trying to go fast now. <laughs> all right. The Neil first time ever trying this, uh, the super chat question for both, which is better Hawaiian pizza or Taylor Swift? This is just, this has got to be Neil Brooks. Oh my gosh. This, this sort of question, this, oh, um, Not, no, I'm going to say no to both. I'm just no to both. I can handle pineapple on pizza. It's not my favorite, but I can handle it. So I'll take that. That's no. right, Tina. I feel like I pineapple on pizza all the way. I feel like I don't even know you anymore. This Although is, my my best friend is a total Swifty, so she would probably disown me for 
opting for Hawaiian. Look, I can appreciate I can appreciate that Taylor Swift is a is a gifted singer. I I, I need to know. I this. cannot Do stand the position she's taking. Do you mean which is taking. better to eat? Oh my gosh. Okay, we're um, moving on. All right, Joseph. Joseph, thank you for the super chat. He says every household in Israel has at least one trained soldier. Not a single household had a firearm. How different would it have been for the uh, if they had had the two way? I think it would have been significantly different. And a lot of those kibbutz, they actually had firearms and ammunition, but they were locked up. This is another thing where we see this in the United States, where somebody will say, "I don't mind you having a gun, but I think it should be." secured and the ammunition should be secured in a different place. It's like, do you know why we have guns? We have guns to be able to provide for our own security. If it's locked up and I can't get to it in an, in an important situation, then it's worthless. And October 7th demonstrated that in Israel. And so, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. They have a lot of trained people. They didn't have adequate access to firearms. And, and the end result was a lot of good, innocent people died as a result. Uh, Post pre-W, thank you for the super chat. Did Obama make good on his desire of a third term with two glorified VPs? Is he 100% in command? I don't think he's 100% in command. I, I think he's probably influential on some level. But honestly, one of the most influential aspects of our government is not who the president is. It's the long-term bureaucracy. It's the people that have been in these agencies that are in positions which are essentially protected um, at, by civil servant laws. They can't be removed by the president. And yet, they've been in that agency 30, 40 years if they want a particular thing done or if they want to slow roll something, they have the power to do it. And so I don't think it's necessarily an individual president behind the scenes or whatnot. I, I think a lot of times the bureaucracy is some of the most powerful uh, entities within a government. Okay, Isaiah, it's sad to see the things people say about Jews now. I saw a post on Instagram about World War II soldier who was part of a liberation of a camp. I saw at least 30 comments saying, now we know it wasn't worth it. Um, Isaiah, this is why I, I said in a podcast a while back that I, I think we could actually see, I, I, I don't know if it'll be on the same level and it certainly won't manifest itself in the same way, but I wouldn't be surprised if we saw, I, I wouldn't be surprised in the lifetime of people saying never again, we actually saw something similar to the Holocaust, uh, because I'm, I am watching now. I mean, you, Israel has about 8 million people. Um, not all of them are Jews. Um, they're, they're completely outnumbered all over the world. And I'm seeing a level of hostility directed toward them that um, I, I haven't seen in my lifetime. And, and that really is concerning, especially how much of it is coming out of the Western university system. But we also shouldn't be surprised because the Western university is now pushing critical theory. And if you look at Herbert Mercuse, if you look at, um, you know, the purveyors of, of critical theory and this whole idea of the oppressed and the oppressor, um, well, then when they put Hamas on the oppressed side, um, it becomes easy for them to justify committing horrible atrocities against uh, perceived oppressors. And I think, uh, unfortunately, we're seeing that more and more, uh, not just within certain portions of the Middle East, but um, all across the West right now, and especially within our university system. Uh, Ethan, just thank you very much for the super chat. <laughs> uh, Micah said, how do you get out of being poor? I'm 22 and working as a dishwasher. I want to get out of dishwasher and be a welder and build a career. What skills I need? I'm trying to be less poor, $12 an hour. Um, Micah, here what I would say. Um, there actually are a lot of uh, programs out there. Um, it, one, of the, one of the biggest things that you can do right now, community colleges offer uh, just a, a lot of benefits to be able to get those, those trades, to be able to get the basic certifications that you need because 
regardless of how we feel about certifications or licensure, most states have some sort of requirements to be able to engage in those services economically. But I will say like in Virginia, there's actually really, really great programs down in, in Norfolk next to the shipyards where you have people there where they're begging for welders. They need more of them. And they will allow you to, for, for relatively little money, you can go in there, get this, the appropriate level of certification where you can start working, start earning, and they will actually help pay for the rest of, of your education to be able to get the appropriate certifications, um, enter in there, you know, and then go through the process as apprentice, journeyman, all that good stuff to where you can actually make good money. But I, I would say that's key. It, it's about finding skill sets and don't listen to what, you know, don't listen necessarily to what everybody talks about. Like, oh, you, you have to have a degree because they, no, you have to have marketable skill sets. And here's how you determine whether or not a market, a skill set is actually marketable. Are people willing to pay you something that you would like to work for in order to do that job? Right. And welding is one of them. Now you may have to move. A lot of people have this idea that, well, I want to be able to make what I want to make wherever I'm living. If the jobs aren't there for what you want to do, you're going to have to move. It's not somebody else's responsibility to bring the jobs to you, right? You got to go to where the work is. And, and all of us have had to do that kind of on some level at some point, depending on what we wanted to do. But go get those certifications, go get those skills. Welding is one of those things that I, I can't, I don't foresee a world in my lifetime where welding is not a marketable skill set. And so I think you're on the right well, track. There's a lot of trades that are really lacking people right now. Construction, um, all kinds of, you know, builders and contractors are constantly looking for people. And so if you're willing to go and apprentice a bit and, and get good at some of these skills, that will open the doors for you because they're desperate for people right now. Alex Hormozzi talks a lot about this as well, to where if you want to be successful in something, if you want to, it, it is going to, if you're making $12 an hour right now, here's what that means. You don't go out with your friends. You don't go out to eat. Yep. You don't, you don't buy a car. You take the bus or you ride a bike. Um, like you, you, your, your entertainment is, you know, maybe you go get a, a gym membership cause that, that helps you stay in shape or whatnot, but you, you focus on whatever you need to do in order to get that certification. So you, you put that up there is that's your goal. You, you calculate out what you've got to earn, how long it's going to take, what you got to do, and you stay focused on that goal. And then you make the sacrifices in other areas. But a lot of people will find themselves in a situation where it's not so much that they don't have the money. Um, I'm acknowledging $12 an hour is, is tough right now to live on, but you go get three roommates. You go, you go get three people that are looking for the same goal or is equally driven. And, and man, you're eating a lot of peanut butter and jelly, but you're, you're, you're doing that for a year. You're doing that for two years. You ain't doing that for the rest of your life. Yeah. Right. Because you're going to get that goal. You're going to get that opportunity. And I will tell you this much, and I cannot emphasize this enough. People ask me all the time, Nick, how hard was it to become a green beret? How hard was it to become a ranger? How hard was it to, and I wasn't ranger regiment. I was ranger qualified. And I will tell you, I was relatively sure I was going to pass those things, not because I was the strongest guy or the fastest guy or the smartest guy, but because I wasn't quitting. I wasn't coming home without my tab. There was no way I was going to go home to my family, to my wife and say, you know, I, I didn't pass. I failed. If I would have had to stay down there and recycle and recycle and recycle, I was going to do it. If you, if you can establish this sort of discipline in order to, it's not that you've established the discipline to get the certification, the discipline that you have, you have given yourself during that time is going to serve you the rest of your life. And that's how you need to look at it. I'm, you're not making a temporary sacrifice to be disciplined, to get the certification. You are building a, a habit of discipline, which is going to serve you in everything that you do. 
And if you look at it from that mindset, it, it'll change the way that you view the sacrifices that you have to make to become more successful. I think it's also important to put yourself in a position to always be building skills. It's not that you yeah. have a skill and then you're done. You are always learning what skill you can acquire. And I think when you're in that position, you're always looking for an opportunity to build skills, whatever they may be. Yeah. All right, Nick, um, are we at that point where we're going to, I, I think we, I think we are. I know I've got to, I've got to jump on. There are so on. many questions. Yeah. And so can I just say, we, are, we will we try to really do this again. Sorry we can't get to every <laughs> single question. It's just the chats are all We had exploding. a bunch of folks in our community chat. Yeah. Submit questions. A lot of people in the live stream. I think we did a pretty decent job with time today. Although I will say there's 511 people watching right now, and I only see six likes on this. Uh, it's just there's 315. If you refresh. Oh, okay. I'm going, <laughs> what's going on? So we did, Are we really we, seeing? We did promise earlier in the stream that we'd have a little fun debate. At the end of the episode, what are y'all's thoughts on that? Okay, we'll do that. Let me ask this one more question, and then we're going to go into the debate because we do have to cut off at about one thirty today. What are we, what are we e Ethan about? said, hey, Nick and Tina, thanks for all you're doing. I'm working on a thesis about American exceptionalism. Where should I start? Keep being awesome. Thank you very much, Ethan. Here, here's what I would start. Whenever we're talking about American exceptionalism, I would work on defining your terms and what that means. And I think to be honest through that process, you have to go really to the, the founding. I would really pour into the Declaration of Independence and the philosophy behind it. So look at the words, the philosophy behind it, and here's what you here's what you use to prove the exceptional nature of it. Look at every other single government in the world at the same time. Right? It's very easy to compare the United States now to oh, there's 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 you know free countries everywhere. Okay, well not in 1776 there weren't. And so what you need to look at is, is the structure of the government that was set up in 1776 and then again in the, in the 1780s with the ratification of the Constitution. Um, look at I, I would focus in on those areas and then I would focus in on what was going on in the rest of the world and the other governments. And then I would fast forward and I would start to look at the influential nature of the American political system and the processes and the things that were essentially proven uh, through working that out. And that's, that's what I would look at. And then the other component that if, if I were writing this paper, I would also look at the number of people desperately trying to immigrate to the United States. Because even with all the problems, with the flaws, with the aspects of our history that we're not proud of, the fact that so many people still have the United States as the number one place that they would like to immigrate to demonstrates that there is something exceptional. Because that's that word that you're focusing on, right? American exceptionalism. Exception from what? So I'd go to 1776, I compare what we were writing in the Declaration of Independence to what other people, other thinkers, other governments were writing. I would look at the ratification of the Constitution in that document compared to every other document that, that was informing systems of government at that time. And then I would look at the consistent nature of people desperately trying to get to the United States from other countries that were by no means poor or, or despotic necessarily. Um, that is what we mean when we talk about exceptional. So that would be my advice there. All right. All right. Two. I'm really worried about this whole Nick and Tina debating each other on which one of us is more conservative because. Well, tell, tell us about the debate y'all had in high school. Well, in high school. Okay. So <laughs> let me just tell you, Nick and I have both evolved quite a bit from yeah. high school. Um, in high school, we were both what I would call like just hard right wing Republicans on the conservative side. Now we tend toward the liberty wing of the Republican Party. We're not libertarians, 
because as I said before, libertarians are cowards when it comes to life. They ignore the non-aggression principle and first cause in order to have their party platform. So I will never be a libertarian as long as that is what they do because they don't believe themselves, apparently. Um, And so we tend to be a little on the liberty wing of the Republican Party, which sometimes collides or, or objects to some conservative things because there are some conservatives who think they, uh, because they're conservative, they should be steering things in the government a lot and, and restricting things and doing a lot of that. We tend to err on the side of freedom for everything. Whereas there are some, I guess you would call them like, like old time Republican, whatever, where they don't like your subsidies and they don't like your regulation, but they want their own regulations and they want their own subsidies and and they're all over the place. And and, I mean, I've had Republicans argue with me over why all these regulations are necessary and why business wants this and business wants that. And this is, you know, what they want. And, And so I see Republicans all the time, conservatives all the time that will do things that bar entry to the marketplace, you know, licensures and things like that. They, They'll they'll go ahead and do corrupt kind of crony things where they do this whole public private partnership oh, yeah. thing where they're yeah. basically picking winners and losers. So I would say both of us have sort of steered more toward the freedom and liberty side. We're still obviously Republicans, I, which I feel like the home of liberty and freedom is the Republican party should be at least should be. And, but some, I mean, we really are a little bit fractured. So I find, I think this argument might be a little difficult for us because we have changed so much. I I didn't talk to y'all about it before the (laughs) show. I, I, I will say that I'm increasingly feeling like, um, I'm, I'm increasingly feel like a person without a home and a political party. And, and that's not because I have massive problems with, with aspect. I, I think the Republican party platform, there's a, there's a lot in there to admire and to hold up. I just come into contact with more and more elected Republicans that obviously don't believe in it. Yeah. And, and that's the part that's become the most difficult for me is that um, more and more I'm, I'm watching the direction that, that people are going. And, and from a historical perspective, I, I start to wonder if, if I really do have a place um, in it. Because I, I I constantly find myself in situations where I feel like I'm I'm making everybody mad uh, with the things I say, and I, and I'm not going to start. And again, if if you want to convince me I'm wrong, I'm I'm happy to have that discussion, but I'm not going to be intimidated mm-hmm. uh, into saying something I I don't believe. Um, yeah, but but between between Tina and I, um, I, I don't I don't think there's a, a great deal of daylight with respect to our underlying philosophy. And um, you know we 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 tease we tease each other when we when we were kind of dating in high school, because as Tina mentioned, we, we both, you know, we were going to a Christian school and I think both of us uh, closely associate ourselves with, you know, the, the Republican party was our team. But at that point, I don't think we had a, a, a very deep philosophical understanding of what we believed or why. And that's certainly changed over time as a result of um, thinking about it, reading about it, um, having various experiences, talking to people, life in general, and then obviously being pretty heavily involved in politics, both as candidates, as as an elected official, seeing what goes on behind the scenes, uh, yeah. seeing how things really work, seeing what really motivates people at times. And it's not to say that everyone's bad or, or horrible. It's just to say that government power is incredibly seductive. Yeah. 
uh, one, one of the questions that somebody asked is, is it possible to be an elected official without being corrupt? Well, I hope so. Because <laughs> uh, Nick is. I, I, still so. <laughs> have, I still have one. But um, He's not corrupt. He is an elected official. Yeah. Thanks for that clarification, we, babe. We call him a, a statesman, though, yeah. not, not well, a politician. Here's, here's, what, um, here's what I'll say, though. I, I, my hope is, because it's a lot of times people will avoid the particular label because they want to be heard and they think that if they're associated with something, then you have, you have your tribe, but now you're completely incapable of, of appealing to anyone else. And I, I want to read this off real quick. And, and this is not, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> this, this is not a brag. It's just, um, it, it really, it just really hit me. Um, so last night I sent this to Tina because, you know, sometimes we'll look at politics and sometimes we'll look at the stuff we do on, on social media. And, and every once in a while you kind of wonder like, uh, you know, is, are we spinning our wheels? Because <laughs> yeah. you look at the direction of the country, you look at what's happening within our school system, within our, our university system, and you just wonder, it's like, is it time to just go off on our property and shut it all down and just do the best we can with what we got? And and is this not our fight anymore? And and I got this, I got this direct message. Um, and I won't say her name because she didn't authorize me to do that. Um, she didn't say one way or the other, but I don't want to assume. She goes, hi, Nick, it's funny. I mostly follow friends cooking and Swedish news on IG. Then you appeared on my discover page with some funny video about parenting or something. And I looked through your IG videos and found myself agreeing to a lot of the things you said. Fast forward and I discovered your podcast and was at first horrified to understand that you are right wing. I started listening through some of the episodes to see what your side of politics are about. I am so confused. I agree with so much of what you and your wife say, especially about feminism. No one in Sweden dares to speak on the topics you do. Feminism, gender, roles, good guys, etc. I so very much agree. And I also realize that I married what you'd call a good man, not a nice guy. And I have come to realize through listening to your podcast that I am much more conservative than I thought I was. Not really sure why I'm writing this to you, but just wanted to say how amazing it is that a 30 year old woman in Sweden can stumble upon an American account like this and find her whole political view and standpoint being shaped at its core. Thank you to you and your family for being so open and outspoken. That's 100% why we do this. That is that our goal was to help change hearts and minds and help people be able to argue for what they believe in and to understand what they believe and why they believe it. And so it's so encouraging when we hear things like that. Well, and, and the, I guess here's the other thing I want to emphasize with that. Um, there are some stuff that I, I think that we can talk about with, with a reasonable level of authority, reasonable. And, and mainly because we, we've experienced it or, or we, we've done it or we've had to work through it. There, there's a lot of other things we can't speak on with, with direct authority, but we, we're, we're happy to you know, stand on the shoulders that, uh, of other people who can. Whether That's the reason why mm-hmm. I talk about Thomas Sowell so much and, and so many other thinkers on here that, uh, that we admire. But a, a lot of what we try to do, whether it's talking about family or politics, is not so much to, to make an argument to say that <laughs> we have now determined that this is correct, now go do it. What we really try to do is say this is what we have experienced um, through growing up in broken homes. This is what we've experienced on building our own family in our own home. This is what we've experienced going to war. This is what she's experienced having to raise a family by herself when I was at war. This is what we've experienced being involved in, in politics. This is what we've experienced, um, you know, in, engaging in, in these various cultural, intellectual, and political, you know, battles. Um, this is the fun that we've had with homesteading and, and what we've, what we've enjoyed and what we've been horrible at and what we're learning. Um, we, we've, 
I hope that we are good representatives for the things that we talk about and for the ideals that, that we put forward. I, I know I'm, I know I'm not always, um, but, but that's always the goal. And, and to the extent that what we talk about allows people to either maybe view something from a perspective they hadn't considered before or gives them encouragement that, yeah, they're not the only ones that, that think this way. Um, that definitely makes this a, a worthwhile endeavor. And, and we do, we do enjoy it. And um, again, it's, it's stuff like that where I, I don't, I don't know what people think sometimes when they're, when they're watching this and they're engaging and, and uh, whatnot. Um, but sometimes I think it's, it's easy to look at it and be like, Oh, well, this is just, you know, this is just a gig or this is just a job or this is just an act or a persona or whatever it is. And, and all I can tell you is <laughs> we, we really do believe in this stuff. Um, and, uh, and, and again, hearing things like that, it, it really is, and it really is encouraging. So, yeah. uh, I wanted, I wanted to thank her for, for sending that. And I did, I, I sent her a message back. Well, the um, fact that the fact that somebody that doesn't agree with us would be willing to give us at least an ear just to hear us out. That's, that's really encouraging. Um, cause I know sometimes I can be super spicy and probably turn some people off because I'm, I tend to be a little bit of a bomb thrower. In fact, <laughs> when we talk about debates between Nick and I, usually we're not debating, uh, policy issues themselves. We're debating how to go about dealing with whatever it is or, or framing it up. And I tend to err on the side of Nick, you just go and just light it all on fire and, and just bring the whole house down around you <laughs> at the house of delegates. When you call every single one of them out by name <laughs> and tell us who the bad actors are and just do this, just do that. Just say this, just say that. And Nick can't stand it when I do that because it is so much, I I'll say stuff like that, just sort of blowing off steam because I'm so mad about whatever political issue this is. And I just want to, I want the satisfaction of just, seeing them just ground into the ground. And so that's just me. <laughs> but Nick looks at this strategically in the long game and goes, but if I do this, I lose this over here. If I do this, you know, maybe I can move some pieces into place and get this over here. And so Nick's much better at diplomacy than I am. Um, but, you know, maybe that's what balances us out. <laughs> well, I, I will say there, are, there have been plenty of times, though, where I've, I've been mad. Um, and, and it, it usually goes like this. Like if once it gets to the point where I'm done, um, oh, you're, you're going to read about it. Right? Like I'm, I'm going to say something that makes people mad. And, and Tina has been very good for me for coming alongside because every once in a while I will write something out that I'm about to send and I'll send it to Tina and, and Tina sometimes will look at me and goes, did you pray about this? Yeah. And uh, I'll be like, well, I'm gonna later. <laughs> you know? Yeah, we do it but, for each. We do that for each. But other. she, she will, she will look at me, and and she has looked at me several times and reminded me. She goes, is, "Is your goal here to try to make someone feel stupid, or is your goal here to to try to maybe convince them of of a better way of thinking?" To about which something? his answer is, "Why can't it be both?" <laughs> Only if they're really obnoxious. <laughs> but listen, all right, that's that's all the time we have for today. I, again, I want to apologize to everyone that had a question in the chat that we weren't able to get to. We try to go through these as, as quickly as possible. We had a bunch in our community chat, and then we had a bunch on there as well. And we, we tried to jump around and get to as many as we possibly could. I know there's a lot on here we didn't get to. I'm promising you we're not avoiding tough questions. We're just getting to the ones that you know 
we see or that that Hamilton gives us as quick as that we can get them. And of course, we always want to we always want to be respectful too of our, our members in our community chat that that send us stuff to ask kind of uh, ahead of time. So if that is something where you you would like to make sure that one of those questions get answered, we can definitely do this again. It, it sounded like there was a lot of interest in, interest in this and and. Um, people. So we, we will do these again. So if we didn't get your question today, it doesn't mean we never will. Uh, we try to get to them sometimes within the community chat. And then sometimes we try to get to them on the show, but every once in a while doing a show, just dedicated to questions uh, might be a good idea. But uh, saying all that, I want to say thank you to everyone again in our community chat and the audience. We really appreciate it. Um, we are going to go into some pre-recorded episodes for the next couple of weeks because we got a lot of people traveling for Christmas and we want everyone to be able to maximize the amount of time that they can have with family. Uh, but we did pre-record some episodes because we still wanted them to be available. We know a lot of people are traveling and maybe this is what you like to listen to on the plane or on the, on the car ride. Um, in fact, we got it. We got an episode I'm really excited about. I got to interview my my father. Uh, this time, I got to interview my mother. And my mother's been a nurse for over 40 years. Mm-hmm. She's been in some pretty crazy situations, both in the United States yeah. and abroad. You guys are and, going uh, to love his mom. And just a little plug: she's single. If you know any <laughs> really conservative, manly men who love Jesus, and it wouldn't hurt if they had like a lot of acreage. <laughs> All right. Other than that, we want to thank you all for watching. Also, once again, want to really sincerely thank Good Ranchers. Um, again, their, their sponsorship of the show means a lot to us. If you're looking for something quality to get as a gift or just for yourself, maybe you haven't figured out Christmas dinner yet, go check out goodranchers.com. Use the promo code Nick. You're going to get uh, discounts. You're going to get free shipping. And uh, they really do have a, a very quality product. And we're very thankful for their sponsorship. Once again, thank you all very much. Everyone have a great Christmas season. And we'll see you next episode.